Hey, and welcome back to the Theotivity Podcast. My name is Thaddeus. I'm so glad that you joined us for today's episode as we continue part two of this uh, series. I'm not sure how many parts there's going to be, uh, but we're exploring the untruth of fragility. We're looking at a coddled culture. But before we jump in, I wanted to make a little you know, observation. Have you ever noticed that the adjective for metal is, not, is, is metallic? So if something is metal, it's metallic, but not so for iron which is ironic. Also in Britain, if you don't want to take the stairs, you take the lift. But in America, uh, you take the elevator. I guess these two cultures are just raised differently. (laughs) Okay, (laughs) enough of that. Let's get to today's episode. Roll that intro. The Theotivity Podcast. Theotivity is the place where theology and creativity come together. Here you'll find audio narration of articles, episodes exploring the faith, culture, the arts and media, systematic theology, apologetics, guest interviews with Christian thinkers, creatives, pastors, theologians, and much more. At Theotivity.com, you'll find articles and resources to help you grow in your faith, as well as a portfolio of creative works. Like, share, and subscribe to stay up to date on the latest content. All right, so I guess you guys continued listening and survived my bad dad jokes. As we saw in part one of this series, uh, the effect of the shift uh, from considering intent to focusing primarily on the felt and subjective impact of an offensive act or speech, uh, that's what we considered in the last episode, and if you missed it, go check it out. Uh, What about the question, though, of whether people are inherently fragile or not? Is there validity to the growing trend of safetyism? We hear the language of safetyism daily when people say things like, the most important thing is that you're safe. Is it actually the most important thing though? (laughs) I mean, I'm not advocating for recklessness, but should we be sheltered from every possible hardship or threat? We see it on the overprotection of kids and youth in public um, these days, even though uh, we in North American society and just in modern society in general live in what is statistically the safest era in history. My generation and older uh, generations remember walking to the corner store as kids without even a second thought. And that was in a time where crime rates were objectively higher. In my case, that was Trinidad. And maybe ignorance was bliss back then, right? But today, we live in an age where a lot of the dangers of previous generations have been effectively reduced. Example, implementation of mandatory safety belt laws, right? That's good. Child safety seats, good. Stricter regulations on children's stores and choking hazards and so on, good. Uh, Also, crime rates in many areas are objectively less than in the past. Now, I know that's not true wholesale for every single uh, instance, but I'm talking in generalities here. Yet still, Many today live in a particular fear and anxiety, feeling the need to shelter their kids and even themselves from the bad things out there. I think a prime example of this has been happening for the past two years during the COVID pandemic, where we know the statistics of what the danger of the the virus is, especially after the first year where we had quite a bit of significant data on that. Uh, But yet what was Um, marketed to us through social media, through news outlets, uh, through politicians even, was an amped up fear-mongering of 
amplifying the fear and the danger that was there. Now, I'm not saying that the COVID virus was uh, not dangerous at all. Yeah, obviously not, right? Some people lost their lives. Some people were seriously sick with it. I got sick and was pretty um, heavily impacted as well. So it's not that there wasn't any danger, but it's this tendency to amplify it, to scare and fearmonger. However, I think it's an important question to ask. Is it appropriate to seek to cut off all risk? Have we perhaps gone too far on a good thing? Could it be that the advent of a 24-hour news cycle and media that constantly parades endless examples of crimes and dangers at every turn has created a culture paralyzed by panic for fear of the boogeyman who doesn't even exist or magnified his smaller statue to seem like a giant? Could it be that the constant stream of breaking headlines delivered to us from the glowing rectangles in our pockets has caused this pandemic of fear and concern about fragility? I'm obviously not referring to instances and situations where there is objective danger. But how often have we sought to find out the objective statistical data to see if our responses and fears are appropriate? What if our fears and anxieties are actually out of step with reality? Let's talk about safe spaces to retreat from danger. This trend has been pejoratively referred to on college campuses as snowflake, snow, uh, uh, can't talk, snowflake culture, a label, label often brandished but, uh, while pointing to the images of the latest college tantrum uh, directed against merely having to contemplate another viewpoint. The examples, which have sometimes been cruelly mocked, I'll admit, are myriad. And many today take advantage of this to paint these things in the worst possible light and in the most unkind words. This is not my goal here. There's several other um, political and cultural commentators out there who do such things. Uh, these trends, though, have led to the invention of what's called safe spaces in some college campuses as retreats for students who feel threatened by the presence of opposing viewpoints, which they view as threatening. So Lukanoff and Haidt in their book, The Coddling of the American Mind, recount the story of a 2015 article from the New York Times, an essay about safe spaces created by the students at Brown University, which entered the public eye. The students were preparing for a debate between two feminist authors on whether if rape culture is an endemic to American culture. Wendy McElroy, who was expressing the dissenting viewpoint, disputing that America is a rape culture, had herself been brutally raped as a teenager and badly beaten as an adult by a boyfriend, which left her blind in one eye. However, in spite of this, she didn't think it was helpful to tell American women that they lived in a rape culture and perpetuate a victimhood mentality. The debate was to have her and the opposing viewpoint, who was Jessica Valenti, uh, present their cases on, on what is admittedly a very sensitive topic in a public but civil discourse. However, some students at Brown objected that bringing in uh, McElroy would actually invalidate people's experiences and be damaging. This was before she had even stepped foot on or said a word in that campus. The students tried to disinvite McElroy from the debate. However, when that didn't work, they created a safe space equipped with blankets, coloring books, bubbles, Play-Doh, calming music, and a video of frolicking puppies, along with people trained to deal with trauma to help those who felt triggered to recuperate. This was one of the earlier reports of safe spaces on campuses that appeared in the public eye and was met with incredulity. 
Couldn't the students who disagreed simply choose not to go to the talk? How is it that the mere presence of an opposing viewpoint such as McElroy's was perceived as such a threat to safety? Though the debate topic may be difficult and even painful to hear, should emotional discomfort be considered dangerous to students? Let's talk about candles or fires. At issue here is whether or not we see ourselves as candles or fires. Nassim Taleb, a professor of risk engineering at New York University, he notes that a candle can easily be extinguished by wind, and so it must be protected. However, a fire, under the right conditions, the wind can actually strengthen it to burn brighter. It's a sort of like our immune systems, which require stresses to learn how to adapt and become more robust. Our bodies are incredibly designed to be efficient systems. If we were to shelter a child from all germs and attacks on the immune system, the immune system actually would never expend the energy to develop defenses against anything. And then a minor bug or virus could end up having an incredible toll later on on the body's own protection system because it would be unprepared having never fought off anything before. And that's kind of the irony that in seeking to protect the child, the parents may end up actually setting them up for a worse disaster later on. This kind of leads into self-fulfilling fragility. Thus, you see, the myth of fragility can become a self-fulfilling prophecy. As students and young people are told that they are fragile, that opposing ideas are dangerous, that disagreement is harmful, that emotional hurt warrants heavy-handed action from supervising powers, they end up actually becoming more fragile. They come to believe that they can't handle such things. They set up intellectual safety bubbles and set themselves up for greater anxiety and conflict later in life as they haven't developed the skills to deal with conflict. It's kind of like not developing an immune system. We must not focus on preparing the road for the child but rather the child for the road. So Lukanoff and Hayden in their book, uh, Calling of the American Mind, they note that research on post-traumatic growth shows that most people report becoming stronger or better in some way after suffering through that traumatic experience. Avoiding triggers is a, actually a symptom of PTSD, not a treatment for it. That's interesting. As ridiculous as all of this may sound to some of you listening, perhaps consider though, how might you have isolated yourself from an in, into an ideological safety bubble of sorts? Both political conservatives and liberals can be guilty of this. Is your unwillingness to entertain opposing viewpoints or ideas due to a hidden belief in safetyism? Have you bought into that narrative too? Have you securely encased yourself within either a liberal or conservative echo chamber? Are all of your conversation partners or all of your social media feeds filled with voices that you already agree with? Or perhaps you've so entrenched yourselves in your theological beliefs or a system that you've grown up with um, on certain debated topics such as, let's say, complementarian versus egalitarian or continuationism versus cessationism or even eschatological positions such as premillennialism, amillennialism and postmillennialism, right? Um, perhaps you, you grew up in a certain tradition that held to one or all of those things, right? A particular side of those matters. But if you're unwilling to hear the best arguments on the other side, not just weak examples and straw men arguments, but the best representations and strongest arguments from the other side, how can you engage honestly about it? How do you know that your beliefs are not just traditions? And how can you form um, 
convictions because I believe that you don't really have convictions until you've challenged them. What you have is beliefs or traditions. But once you've challenged them to against the best examples on the other side, and then you come out either refined or holding to the same thing, then you have convictions. So how, how might we, in less extreme forms, perhaps, than the examples from these college campuses, be doing the very thing that we might ridicule? Are we candles or are we fires? Let me give you some wisdom for the flames. What does God's word have to say on this? Are people inherently fragile and in need of protection, or are we robust and need to shed this coddling? Again, scripture gives us a good balance to think within. It tells us that both situations exist. They are legitimate situations and persons who are fragile and are in need of protection. For example, small children and those who are vulnerable to exploitation or unable to defend or provide for themselves are in need of protection. That is legitimate. Psalm 82 verses 3 to 4 instructs us to give justice to the weak and maintain the rights of the afflicted. Proverbs 31 verses 8 to 9 speaks a uh, tells us to speak up for the rights of those who are destitute or poor and needy. Isaiah 1.17 tells us to seek to correct tangible injustice and oppression. James 1.27 tells us that the mark of true religion is to care for those who are vulnerable. And Jesus himself tells us not to despise little children in Matthew 18.10 and Mark 10.13-16. Notice though that there are clear categories and objective criteria for determining these vulnerable groups which must be offered protection. It's not just some subjectively determined or that is, you know, just someone saying, I feel threatened, but rather it's, it's also, it's, it's an objective criteria to determine these vulnerable groups. Also for some of them, such as small children, it's not an indefinite period of coddling, but rather something which must be adapted to be appropriate with their age, their growth and their maturity level. As they grow up, they should move on from that coddling. Speaking about spiritual maturity, for example, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 2 that milk is for children, right? Milk is for the babies and solid food is for the, for the mature. He implies there that there's an expected change in diet, uh, in how one is to interact with someone based on the level of maturity. There's also an implication that maturity necessitates putting away those childish things. Actually, he says that explicitly in 1 Corinthians 13 verse 11. Right? That we're to put away childish things. There's an expectation on growth towards maturity and resilience. So let's talk about how we might prepare children for the, for the road. Scripture and experience also tells us that the hard lessons of life can bring wisdom. For example, Job, in, res in response to his friend Zophar, right, observes that wisdom is with the aged and understanding in length of days. Later, the young uh, friend Elihu who was timid to speak before the older friends, said that he reasoned, let these speak and many years teach wisdom. Recognizing that generally, generally speaking, age and experience bring wisdom. Now, to be sure, all of Job's miserable comf comforters were rebuked by God at the end of the book, right? By the end, they all got some, some uh, rebuke from God. But the statement that wisdom is often gained by the aged through life experiences, that holds true. The Bible also tells us that difficulties and trials often build Christian character. James 1 uh, verses 2 to 4, for example, says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
Romans 5 verses 3 to 5 says, uh, not only that, that we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been giving to, given to us. So in fact, for the Christian, there's great confidence that God is working all things, even the trials and difficulties of life for good, Romans 8.28. Thus, it would seem that scripture, in contrast to this untruth of fragility in our culture, tells us actually that we're not fragile, but rather we're robust and need challenges and trials in this life in order to grow and build character. One may even say or argue that they're necessary actually to build character and guaranteed for the Christian that we will have trials and tribulations in these days. See, for example, Acts 14, verse 22, or 2 Timothy uh, 3, verse 12, right? Our Lord even uses unpleasant experiences to discipline us, to produce righteousness and peace for those who are trained by it. That's what the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 11. So to shelter oneself totally from all oppositions would actually be to rob yourself of growth opportunities. So what can we learn? What we see is that in contrast to some who will just ridicule this whole trend of growing fragility, a biblical worldview actually gives us a balanced perspective. We see that there are legitimate cases of vulnerable people who need to be protected due to objective and sometimes temporary criteria. So it would be unwise to say that we shouldn't think about safety and protection of the weak at all. However, it also shows us that much of the overreaction of safetyism is unwarranted and even ultimately harmful in setting people up for failure in life. Nassim Taleb uh, notes this. He says, uh, much of our modern structured world has been harming us with the top-down policies and contraptions, which do precisely this, an insult to the anti-fragility of systems. This is the tragedy of modernity. As with neurotically overprotective parents, those trying to help are often hurting us the most, end quote. So how do we live quorum deo about this? For creatives like myself, we've perhaps noticed the increase in such messaging in movies, TV, advertising, etc. right? Creative media is often the vehicle to carry and spread these messages. And Christian creatives would do well to think deeply about the type of messaging they propagate. Sometimes, while well-meaning, we may end up actually perpetuating a cycle of fragility, thinking instead of helping people grow from trials, uh, which we must all face, in order to mature. So instead of propagating this continuous cycle of victimhood mentality and fragility and these sorts of things that really are a very uninspiring narrative to give to people, instead perhaps you can help people see how they might think of themselves actually as resilient and able to grow and benefit from the trials that they face. For consumers of media and participants in our culture, we must learn to critically evaluate the messages which are sometimes subtly portrayed and communicated to us through news, education, and even the entertainment that we consume. We can ask, how does God's word give me wisdom to see what are true elements and what are false narratives? Now, this is going to require a robust biblical worldview and a systematic development of one's theology, which doesn't come from just passive consumption for secular culture's products. It doesn't even come from just passive consumption of one sermon a week on a Sunday. We must strategically carve out time for us to invest in our spiritual maturity and theological development if we're ever to be able to recognize and respond to the issues of our day. Don't underestimate 
the long-term impact of scheduling just 20 to 30 minutes a day, perhaps, or even a few hours a week to studying God's word, reading books, and helping you deepen your theology. The culture wars are ultimately determined by discipleship. We're always being discipled. It's just a question of by whom are we being discipled. The culture in the days and years to come will directly reflect how effectively we've been discipled and been making disciples. Never underestimate the, the often silent and unnoticed power of a mom teaching her kids or friends getting together and reading together, forming a book club or small groups studying God's word and sharing gospel opportunities with a neighbor and, and many other simple, faithful discipleship opportunities, engaging with the culture intentionally and not retreating from it. Each of these flames together can make up a fire that the winds of trials may blow to actually energize and spread as we burn for Christ. So how about them apples? Let's move from milk to meat. Now, I think next in this series, I'd like to talk about the untruth of emotional reasoning. So stay tuned for our next podcast in this series, uh, hopefully coming soon. I hope you've enjoyed this content. If you have and you've benefited from it, make sure to like and leave a uh, review that helps. And uh, as well, you can share it with your friends and help Theotivity to grow a little bit more. Until next time, Soli Deo Gloria. Thanks for listening to the Theotivity podcast. If you found this content helpful or edifying, please leave a review on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Also, follow us on social media and consider sharing this episode to help Theotivity reach others as well. Check out Theotivity.com for resources, info on how to support, and subscribe to our monthly newsletter to stay up to date on all the latest content. Until next time, live and create to the glory of God.